It's, uh, it's good to be with you today. We're going to continue our series called The First News, where we look at the first recorded gospel, the first recorded good news of Jesus' life and ministry here on earth. And had there been a newspaper around in the first century, the stuff Jesus said and the stuff Jesus did definitely would have been front page material. So this, is a, this has been a really exciting series so far, and we're looking forward to continuing it today. Um, we're going to pick up right where Pastor Becky left off last week in Mark chapter 2, but we're going to skip around a little bit. Um, but before we get there, I just want to say it really is so good to be with you today on all of our campuses, and for those watching online, and for those reading this in the in- incarcerated church, our friends through CF Inside. And, uh, and I know I say that like every time I get up here, but saying it today has a little bit of an extra special meaning because I wasn't sure I was going to be able to be here today. About 10 days ago, we took our son to experience his, his first trip to the happiest slash most stressful place on earth um, when we went to Disneyland, and uh, this was in front of California Adventure. If you go to Disneyland, apparently you have to take a picture in front of that Ferris wheel, and, and so we did that. But we went, and we had, a, we had a great couple days there, and then we left and started driving home, and about halfway home, about halfway up the grapevine on the 5 freeway, uh, at about 8.30 at night, my transmission went out in my car which was not a great feeling. Uh, we, had, we had just been, been walking around Disneyland for two days. We were exhausted. My son was, was a little cranky after having so much um, just, just capture his attention for a couple days. And so my wife was sitting in the back seat with my son, and all of a sudden our car couldn't get out of third gear. We couldn't go any faster than 30 miles per hour on the freeway. And so my wife started making um, super helpful noises to communicate her level of stress in the back seat. <laughs> Um, I don't know why, like my mom did that all growing up, like, ah, like that doesn't help anyone. <laughs> and my wife and I have a, a rule now where she doesn't make those noises except for that trip. She'll literally sit in the front seat and go, you're about to hit a vehicle. <laughs> and, okay, thanks, honey. Um, so anyways, we, we, uh, we, we were able to pull off onto an exit and we, we ended up in Gorman, California. And, uh, Gorman is just beautiful this time of year, let me, let me tell you. Uh, if you're looking for a vacation spot, uh, go to Gorman. Uh, they have this pristine Motel 6 that we stayed at for, for two days. And luckily, we know God had his hand over us because there was a mechanic shop about a tenth of, the mile, tenth of a mile away from, from where, uh, where we were staying. And he put in a new transmission and we were able to get on our way and eventually make it back home. But we thought... We were stuck in Gorman forever, and we were reimagining our lives in, in Gorman, and uh, it, was, it was fun. But So all that to be said, it's, it's good to be with you, and I actually did have a really good time at Disneyland with my son, and for any, anyone who knows me, those are absolutely shocking words to hear come out of my mouth, because I hate Disneyland. Now, good, <laughs> one other person. Last night there was a gasp and then I looked down and there was a guy wearing Mickey Mouse ears in the front row. I was like, what are you doing? You are a grown man. Uh, um, but, but seriously, I, I can't stand the place. The, the food is, is, is not very good and it's too expensive. It costs a ton to get in. The rides are not that fun. If we're being honest, they're not that fun. Like you go on It's a Small World and feel good about your life after you get off that ride. No, you don't. Um, so, 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 so like... We, we went and, and we experienced it. And to be honest, like Disneyland wouldn't be all that bad if it weren't for people. Like, like people ruin it. Like the, the lines are insane. Um, like you can't walk three feet without, 
without getting your foot run over with a stroller. Um, there's, there's these, these, like, all these people are in line with matching T-shirts that, that just have to do with their Disney trip. They, they go to a lot of work, and it just annoys me. And, and uh, like I said, there's grown men wearing Disney ears that, like, poke you in the eye as you walk by. It's like people just get so in to Disneyland, it's like this, it's like this, this bug, this virus that's infected them and, and, and they've given their lives to it. Like it's just consumed them and, and, and taken over their heart. And I would go as far as to say that it's a sickness. Um, it's, it's an epidemic. See, thank you, there are some people that agree with me about Disneyland. Um, but you know, I noticed as I was there that the Disneyland, it's, it's, kind of gone, it's kind of gone viral, right? Like it's, it's taking over. And uh, as I think about some of those terms I just used, epidemics and something going viral, I know that those tend to have a negative connotation, but I think recently culture has shifted those words for us. I mean, think about like social media movements going viral, like the, uh, the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge that captured the nation a couple years ago, or the Me Too movement that's going right now that gives women a safe space to express the um, disappoint, disappointing sexual harassment that they've experienced. And, and uh, we as a country get to denounce sexual harassment and assault. Um, when something goes viral, it, it, it reaches people in all different circles, and it's widespread, and, and it can be a really good thing. And so as I observed my, my surroundings at Disneyland last week and the Disney virus that was consuming people, I couldn't help but think about our text today and about the things that capture our thoughts and our motivations and our actions, the things that grab a hold of us, the things that consume us, the things that infect us. You know, and usually when we hear words like virus or infection, we think of like the flu that's been going around for the last, what, like three months, and, uh, and, and a cold or, or terrible things like rabies or Ebola, um, because that's what those words mean. But today, instead of allowing your mind to drift to those places, when I say words like infections and viruses, I want you to think about what those things do. They invade, they consume, they take over. When a virus enters a host cell, it goes into action and it multiplies itself. And regardless of our preconceived understandings we have about viruses and, and infections, I hope to learn with you today and maybe even convince some of you that we are all infected in some way, shape, or form. However, the heart of today's conversation is centered on the tremendous significance of what we are infected with. Um, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter two. We're gonna start in verse 13 today. And uh, Becky left us off last week after the first part of chapter two where where four guys lowered one of their closest friends um, on a mat down in front of Jesus for physical healing. And we've already seen at this point in Mark some pretty big tension between the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, and Jesus. And today's text has, has a lot of that same tension. Um, so let's start in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. Now, the word that, that we read there, follow, it appears 19 times in the book of Mark. And it is a, a load-bearing term. It describes the proper response in faith. It's not about what someone thinks or believes, but also what someone does. 
And it's, and it's not surprising that Jesus encounters tax collectors here in Capernaum as travelers who would come from the territory of Herod Philip and the Decapolis would, would, would come to this area and be taxed by agents like Levi. And back then, land and poll taxes were collected directly by the Romans, but the taxes on transported goods were outsourced and contracted out to local tax collectors, mostly ethnic Jews, guys like Levi, uh, the man that Jesus is talking to. Levi is, is a middleman, and he would make his profit, like all tax collectors would, by extracting as much money as he possibly could from the taxpayers. So you can see how tax collectors would eventually become pretty greedy, dishonest, and sneaky individuals. So, so it makes sense that tax collectors were despised and hated. First century Jews loathed tax collectors. Um, actually, the Mishnah, the, the rabbinic Judaism's oral tradition, contains scathing judgments of tax collectors. A Jew who collected taxes was disqualified as a judge and a witness in court. Um, they were expelled from the synagogue and were a complete disgrace to their family. If you, were, if you were touched by a tax collector, it rendered your entire household unclean. It infected you and plagued you. It defiled you. And to, and to defile, so this is a word we're going to talk about a little bit today, defile. To defile someone or something, it means to make them dirty or spoiled or, or less than or desecrated. And the difference between clean and unclean was very important in Jewish culture. There was a direct correlation between cleanliness and holiness. If you were a practicing Jewish citizen and you did something that defiled you, if you came into contact with something or someone that was impure or unclean, then you had to go through rituals of purification or ceremonial washing just to get to the right standing with God, just to get to the correct category in front of God. These tax collectors were all fundamentally categorized not as people who just occasionally transgressed against the Torah, but were rather people who stood completely outside of it. They were an alien class, an infected group of people. And here we have Jesus. Look what Jesus is doing. Verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at, at Levi's house, he's at Levi's house eating with many tax collectors and sinners who were eating with him and his disciples because many followed him. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with them? Why does he eat with the undeserving? Why does he eat with the unrighteous? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, right here, Jesus comes directly to the heart of the matter at hand. He says, I am a doctor and I bring health, not just to the physically sick like we learned about last week, but to, to Israel and to the world as a whole. We, we, we see the difference here between the mission of Jesus and the mission of the Pharisees. The, the Pharisees come to enlighten. They come to point out all the things you're doing wrong, what you need to do to get right, to right standing with God. And here's Jesus who comes to redeem and, and the Pharisees are right. Like, they're onto something. Jesus is definitely hanging out with those who have been consumed with evil. They are gluttonous crooks driven by greed, and they are infected with their, their iniquities. But Jesus brings redemption and healing, so it would make no sense for Jesus to turn away someone in need of healing or someone who was broken in much the same way it would make no sense for a doctor to turn away a sick patient. Jesus is the doctor. 
He is the one who heals. He removes the virus of evil. It's like Jesus gives us this kingdom of God antidote that rids you of the infection. But the incredible thing about Jesus is that when he heals you, he doesn't just remove the virus, he actually replaces it with something else. Hold on to those, those two words today, remove and replace. These are gonna be important words for us as we continue this conversation. Um, you see, when this doctor gives you an antibiotic, when Jesus cures you, when you choose to follow Jesus like Levi did, it's as if something else infects you. It's like something holy and pure and clean goes viral within you. You see, Jesus taught that the kingdom he came to bring was not a list of legalisms or, or, or a code of do's and don'ts, but rather he said, the kingdom of God is within you. This is central to Jesus's ministry and message and the reason he came and gave his life and resurrected from the dead. Because Jesus is the embodiment of the kingdom. And after he resurrected from the dead, he would indwell his followers. Jesus consumes you when you surrender, surrender your life to him. And when Jesus flows from the inside out of a person, things change. C.S. Lewis said it like this. If you, have, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, that would seem a lot like what the Pharisees were working toward, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. We see some more of this similar conversation in, in chapter seven. Go ahead and flip over to, to Mark chapter seven with me now, whether you're on your, uh, your phone apps or, or, or you're in your Bible. Um, we're gonna spend a little time here. Um, let me give you a little context. Here we find Jesus speaking with some of the Pharisees who noticed that, that Jesus' disciples were eating food with unwashed hands, which, which meant that they were defiled, they were unclean, they were, they were tarnished. Jews at that time did not eat until they did a ceremonial hand washing because eating with dirty hands was something that went completely against those holiness practices we talked about earlier. If you ate with dirty hands, that meant you were putting dirty food into your body and that then made you unclean and you needed to go through other rituals of purification to be in right standing before God. This, this went completely against Jewish law, eating with dirty hands. Which, if we think about it, that makes sense, right? Like, it probably still should um, be against, uh, it should, should break some laws to eat with unwashed hands. Uh, I read a report from the New York Times this past week that at sporting events, one-third of men do not wash their hands after using the urinal. Yeah, we're disgusting. Disgusting human beings. Um, and I just tell you that maybe it makes you think twice before, like, high-fiving that dude next to you after a touchdown or ordering that hot dog that needs to get passed all the way down the aisle. Like, maybe... I think we can all agree that that's unclean, right? Um, so we get the idea then why Jewish law states that dirty hands need to be washed before the consumption of food. You wouldn't let dirty food go into your body because of unwashed hands. The biggest difference is when you do that though, it defiles you as a person in Jewish culture. So the Pharisees see Jesus' disciples not going through the ceremonial hand washing and they look at Jesus and they're like, hey, what's up with that? Why are they doing that? What's going on? And in response, Jesus gives them a bit of an ear, earful and tells them that they're completely missing the point. Look at verse eight. He says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. You, you judge and condemn and criticize through the lens of your own tradition and you miss the heart of what truly infects people. 
And let's skip down to verse 14. Look, look what Jesus does next. Jesus calls the crowd to him and says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Now, Jesus is saying something highly, highly controversial here. He says that what you eat isn't what makes you clean or unclean. After thousands of years of history and culture, this makes little to no difference to you and I. But to Jesus' audience, their recent history included Jewish martyr stories of people who died because they refused to eat unclean food. Jews were, were in full agreement that eating defiled food was cause for a cleansing bath. But Jesus says, no, no, no. It's actually inner impurities that defile the things on the outside. And, and when Jesus makes this distinction, he actually does something brilliant. You see, rabbinic theory held that interior spaces like, like a clay pot or a hollow container, the inside of that container was the most susceptible to defilement and therefore the most in need of cleansing. So Jesus takes this idea about pots and pans and applies it to people. It's the inside that matters. What has captured your heart? What has consumed you? What has infected you? What has gone viral at your core? Verse 17, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. And Jesus said, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside, and that's what defiles a person. You see, Jesus wanted his disciples to grasp, grasp something here. A deep truth about the way humans are. And Jesus expects them to get the meaning, but his disciples are too caught up in the apparent potty humor of Jesus' words when he talks about what goes into your body and what goes out of your body. I mean, most of them are teenagers, so you can understand why they're getting caught up in some of this. Um, only when they get back to the house does Jesus explain that he was talking about something that went way beyond the bathroom. He goes beyond digestion and moves to the source of our desires and our actions, the heart. See, Jesus is insisting that good and bad external and physical actions derive from internal and spiritual sources. And so the negatively infected parts of humanity, the real defilement originates from the poison, from the infection within. Here's what Jesus says. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. You know, this, this past week, I was, as I was studying, I was, I was digging into this list, and I was like, man, maybe I should go one by one and just talk about all the things we struggle with. And then I just started looking at it, and I was like, you know what? I think in this past week, I've noticed a majority of these evil thoughts, these unholy acts, come from within me. 
I've seen some of these things consume my soul, and from that, there's been an outpouring of sin. And because of that, everything about me wants to do some sort of, of ceremonial washing to, 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 to make up for my wrong. Like, I want to get back to right standing with God. Have you ever been to that place? Like, like my natural response is when I, when I sin, when I fall short, I want to go, okay, God, now what do I need to do to make you happy again? Do you ever feel that? See, the interesting thing is, is that Jesus changed all that. In studying the life of Jesus, what we realize is that Jesus expects his followers to be engaged in the endless process of discovering what the word of God means and how to really live that out and then going forward and actually living it out. To remove our own motivations and our own convictions and replace them with the motivations and convictions of the Holy Spirit. My ceremonial washing then is true repentance of sin and an examination of my heart. To begin to discover the parts of me that are infected with things not of Jesus, and then this is where it gets really interesting, then to have Jesus replace that infection with the infectious presence of the kingdom of God within me. So that what flows from the inside out of me looks a lot less like evil and a lot more like Jesus. And what's interesting is that when I go through this process, I realize, when I go through this self-examination, I realize there are things about me and things about my heart that need to change. Anyone else thinking about that word lately, the word change? It's, it's the beginning of the year. A lot of us go through these, these New Year's resolutions about three weeks ago, and, and unfortunately, only 40% of us are going to keep them by the, by the end of the month. Um, by the time January's done, 40% of us will not have kept our New Year's resolutions. Actually, 70% of us by the time Valentine's Day hits will not have kept our New Year's resolutions, which is great because my gym's getting a little crowded right now and I'm ready for you guys to be out of there. Um, but, but, but we aren't necessarily good at sticking with things that we resolve to change in our lives, are we? And I think this is especially true when it comes to our faith and our walk with Jesus. And it might be because we tend to miss the point here as well. We can't just change things on the, in, on the exterior. Infections are deeper than that. We need Jesus, the true antidote to an evil heart, to heal us and then in turn to have the kingdom of God infect, infiltrate, and consume our hearts. Regardless of where we're at on our journey with Jesus. And whether you're just starting to figure this out now and you're starting to take your first steps with Jesus and you're like, what does it mean to have Jesus heal me? Or, or maybe you're someone who, who started following Jesus and you thought that when you started following Jesus, all those temptations and all those evil thoughts would just get washed away. And you're realizing, you know what, I gotta die to the sickness of self day by day and moment by moment. And then for some of us, we've, we've actually become complacent in our faith. That we're just going through the motions. We, we, we do all the right things to, to, to try and cure the infection of the culture and the world around us. But it, it, it seems like we've almost missed the thing that, has, that, that originally captured our heart. Now, I realized that that was true for me about five years ago. I was a pastor, and I realized that I was just going through the motions. And I realized, when I be, I realized this when I became a part of a one-thing group. And the premise of a one-thing group is to look at one thing for one year that is keeping the, the kingdom of God from spreading through your entire being. And so I, I became a part of this group with three of my closest friends here at Cornerstone, and, uh, and we started to, to talk about the, things that, the thing that God wanted to work on in us, and we started to work through it, and we realized pretty quickly that 
when we thought that this was the issue, there was some underlying issues underneath those. Um, for me, I, I told the, these three guys, I said, I think the thing that God really wants to work on in me is my arrogance. And they were like, yeah, we think that too. <laughs> and uh, and so, so we started talking through it and they'd you know, hold me accountable and call things out in my life. And then after, after a couple months, we realized, you know what, actually at the root of my arrogance is, is insecurity. And then the Holy Spirit worked on that for a little while and we realized that at the root of my insecurity was, was fear. And then it, as we worked on that for a little, little while, we realized that at the root of my, insecure, or of, of my fear was that I had a deep trust issue with God. I didn't trust who God said, said I was. I didn't trust that God was who he said he was. I didn't trust that God made up for my deficiencies. I didn't trust that I was good enough. And as a result, I developed this, 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 this virus within me that just spread and caused evil thoughts that led to things like arrogance and insecurity and fear. See, that lack, that lack of trust infected me and produced evil ways in me. That lack of trust spread like a virus through me. And to be honest, it still occasionally does. This is something that I have to let go of and give to Jesus on a daily basis. In chapter three of Mark, we read another interaction Jesus had with Pharisees where, where they're actually condemning Jesus for, for healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, which is lawful, right in the beginning of Mark, Mark 3, um, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do, to do evil, to save life or to kill? And then Jesus then told a man with a withered hand, he said, stretch out your hand. And the guy stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And what's ironic about this, this story is that the Pharisees were getting upset at Jesus for healing on the day that was meant for What? Restoration, right? Sabbath is intended for rest and restoration. And the Pharisees, here's the Pharisees getting upset at Jesus for restoring a man's hand on the day that was intended to do just that. But here's what Jesus shows us through this, through this act. He shows us that restoration only comes from him. Jesus fixes what is broken. He puts our mess together. He heals us. He restores us. He removes the affliction and replaces it with something new, something fresh, and something useful. And from what we saw in Mark 7, we realize the priority that Jesus places on restoring us from the inside out. You see, through my interaction with, with my small community of four, I realized that my heart was weakening because of my arrogance and eventually understood the root sickness came from my lack of trust in God. Much like that man's hand was in Mark 3, my heart was withered. And I'm so grateful for, for that opportunity I had to walk through the healing of my infected heart with people who could speak truth into my life. I think this is why in Cornerstone, um, we've, we've understood the importance and value of those smaller circles. I mean, these rows that we're sitting in on all of our, in all of our auditoriums are great, but it's different when you can stretch out your hand and ask for healing from Jesus and then have people walk through that with you. As a church, we've discovered that we're better together because we cannot get the support and accountability we need in order to truly have Jesus consume us and work from the inside out of our lives as a witness to the power he has to heal us on a daily basis. That when we fall or when one of those evil infections works its way in, we still have hope in the restoration that Jesus provides as the people around us pick us up and encourage us to move forward. Look, if you're not in a group right now, 
I encourage you to get in a group. And if your group does not get to this level of conversation where you're actually talking about things that matter in life, I encourage you this week, get to this level of conversation. Let's discover what is ailing us together. Let's figure out what is withering our hearts and be there for one another as Jesus removes whatever it is that is ailing us. I mean, do that this week. Can, can we have a moment of authenticity and vulnerability in our groups where we ask ourselves this question? We can say to one another in our group, hey, what's, what's withering your heart? What is that thing for you? What needs to be healed in you? What can we walk through with you? What's withering your heart? What does Jesus need to restore? You know, it's so interest, interesting that Jesus told the man with the, with the withered hand to stretch out his hand before he healed him. Almost as if to say, hey, you've gotta play a part in this too, and then when you do, you gotta let whatever that is go. You gotta let that sickness go. Maybe, maybe that's what this question will do for you. It will allow you to let go of whatever has infected you. If we've been in, infected with something that needs to be healed, we have to let it go. We have to let Jesus remove that infection. I mean, maybe you've been holding on to something like I was with my lack of trust. Maybe, maybe there's something withering your heart that you need to let go of to your community that they can help you walk through. Maybe it's a, a grudge that needs to be forgiven, a, a lie that needs to be confessed, a fear that, that needs to be conquered. The lust, envy, pride, greed that has attached itself to your heart and has, it has begun to consume you. Because when we ask Jesus to heal us of our infirmities, he removes it and he replaces it with him. We are instead infected with the love and servanthood and selflessness that exemplifies Jesus. Compassion, grace, mercy goes viral within us. You know, the other beautiful part about, about going through this together is that when we let go of the evil ways within us, we can remind each other and collectively grab onto the promises that God, that God brings through his word. You know, I think one of the most difficult parts of, of letting something go or, or bringing something like this in front of a group is that sometimes we feel like, okay, now I let it go and now I'm just stuck. Well, the powerful thing about a group is that when we let go of something, our group can help us to hold on to the truth that God brings and the truth that God gives. Truth and promises like the promise that we will never be tempted beyond what we can bear. Promises, promises like that God is always with us, he's always nearby, that, that he forgives us when we screw up, that he is gracious, that he gives us strength, that he guides us, that he gives us peace, that he made us more than conquerors no matter what we're up against, and that nothing, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sometimes we need our groups to help each other hold on to those truths. We have to help one another hold on to the truth that, that, that Jesus can bring as he permeates every fiber of our being. You know, I think when we do this, when, when Jesus consumes us and infects our hearts in a group this size on our campuses all throughout the East Bay, something beautiful happens. You know, on my trip down to Disneyland last week, I, I listened to the book, um, The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. And, and in it, Gladwell chronicles events and, and episodes and trends that he describes as contagious or viral or in the most extreme language, epidemics. And one of the things he writes about it is yawning. Um, have you ever thought about how contagious yawning is? Like, like if you see someone else yawning, you start yawning, or, or if someone sees you yawning, they start yawning. Actually, even since I've started to say the word yawning, I see some of you yawning, and now everyone's yawning, and the guy that just went to the bathroom is walking in going, man, this sermon got boring quick. Um, 
It's because yawning is contagious, right? Here's what Gladwell writes about contagiousness. He says, contagiousness, in other words, is an unexpected property in all kinds of things, and we have to remember that if we are to recognize and diagnose epidemic change. You know, in the same way that we think about and talk about infections and viruses, when we hear the word epidemic, we often think of something negative because that's what the word means. But, but the power of the word with its definition, listen to this definition of, of, of epidemic. It means sudden widespread occurrence of a particular phenomenon. That definition gives me so much energy and excitement and hope for the church and the followers of Jesus in the East Bay and the change that can come through us. I mean, you don't often hear of an epidemic of peace or an epidemic of, of love going around, do you? However, and this is, this is Gladwell's genius in the book, the very same way that viruses and flus spread and can turn quickly and massively into epidemics, so too can positive change in our society spread. Here's the deal, church. When Jesus removes what is withering our hearts, when he removes the infection and replaces it with him, when we are consumed by and infected instead by Jesus, an epidemic is on the horizon. Because the more people a virus infects, the more powerful a virus is. When we're infected with Jesus, when Jesus takes control of our entire being and his compassion and love and, and generosity flows from the depths of our heart, that Jesus infection becomes contagious because it is exactly what people in the East Bay need. This is how we repair the fabric of the East Bay. I mean, I mean this is why we're sitting here today. One of the most compelling arguments for the Christian faith is the simple fact that it's still around First century Christians were not organized, they had no buildings, and were basically considered a cult. For three centuries, Christians were completely powerless. They were persecuted and tortured and murdered, yet somehow their movement continued to grow. Why? Like, that makes no sense. I mean, it wasn't their wealth, they didn't have any. It wasn't their theology either. Religious leaders were so confused by their beliefs. You know what it was? It was their compassion and their generosity. They were beaten and murdered, but it was like something else had consumed them, had infected them, and it gave them a peace and a joy that you could not explain. You couldn't ignore it. And so consequently, they welcomed more and more people into their movement, an epidemic that changed the world. That's why we're sitting here today. It's a movement we are a part of, and we have an opportunity to have the same generosity and the same compassion go viral in our neighborhoods and our communities as we welcome people into our groups and into our homes, as we hold each other accountable, and as we work together through Jesus as he removes and replaces the infection in us to give Jesus control of our heart and our soul, to consume us, to take hold of us, to invade us from the inside out. Let's pray. God, it is, it is so good to be here today with, with this group of people, a group of people that have been infected with the love and, and grace and compassion and generosity of you. God, we know that, that as we go through life that there's different things that work their way in, um, in into our hearts and into our souls, and, and God, we ask that, that as we go through the process of becoming more and more like you, um, that we can hold each other accountable and help each other move forward, that we can be there for one another as you work and move in our lives, God. Father, that as we, we become infected with you, the same grace and love and mercy that you show us would be the same grace and love and mercy that would spread throughout, throughout the East Bay, throughout our communities, throughout our families, God. 
God, that as we lean into you and as, as, as we, we understand more and more what it means to live out your word, God, that the infectious presence of your kingdom would just consume us and that that, that, that infection would spread. Jesus, you are so contagious. That's why many of us are sitting here today is because we saw someone who lived a life that honored you and we said, I want a piece of that. I want a part of that. God, let us be those people. Let us represent you, Father. Take a hold of us from the inside out, Lord, and allow us to to partner with you to change the East Bay, a place that is in desperate need of your healing, God. We adore you, Father. We are are so um, honored that you just, you even allow us to be a part of your your plan, of your movement, of this epidemic that is still changing the world. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.